Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Anthony Magnabosco. Anthony is a promoter and practitioner of street epistemology. He's the executive director of Street Epistemology International, and his YouTube channel extensively documents his interactions with hundreds of people where he asks them about their beliefs and helps them discover new ways of thinking about those beliefs via street epistemology. So, uh, Anthony, welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. Thank you so much for having me on, Mick. Yeah, it's great uh, great to have you on. So, uh, the site streetepistemology.com, I've been reading reading through that. That's uh, it's a great resource. There's lots of really useful information on there. Uh, and it's coming along. It's coming along. It's a work in progress. <laughs> it, it's it's a, yeah, I think it's it's very good. It's got some very nice like kind of short uh, short explanations of what street epistemology is and some longer ones and some more detailed things. And uh, on the first page of the, of the resources section, it's got this, what is street epistemology? And it gives these four different, uh, you know, short definitions. Like when people ask mm. you what street epistemology is, what's the, like, the, the quick elevator pitch for street epistemology? I like to describe it as a dialogue where you use questions to explore somebody's claim to see how they concluded that it's true. That's mm-hmm. my very quick, you know, first floor to the second floor elevator pitch. But if we were going to the hundredth floor, I might explain that it originated in the atheist community, geared for atheists to engage with theists on their deeply held beliefs. But we quickly realized that it could be used for all sorts of different claims, including the claims that atheists make. So it's a, it's a tool that can be used by pretty much anybody when you want to figure out how they how they determine that they can be so sure that it's true. And it's a respectful engagement where you are giving people plenty of time to explain their position and their reasons and their method for verifying those reasons. And it tends to end on a on a friendly note where a person is sometimes left with a pebble in their shoe so that they can go on their own and figure out, do I really have good reasons for thinking that this is true? Sometimes people back off of their confidence. Sometimes they stay the same. Sometimes they increase their confidence. Uh, sometimes they even completely abandon their view. So it's a it's a dialectical technique that's a, I think it originated from the Socratic method. The professor that came up with it uh, is a philosophy professor, and we've been taking it since he wrote that book in 2012. And I think we've really developed it into something quite powerful. And I'm I'm really excited to be on your show to talk to you more about it and see how we might be able to use it in different different venues, things that maybe you're interested in using it for. Yeah, no, I'm really interested because uh, I I talk to a lot of people who are conspiracy theorists. My, my background, uh, like doing this type of thing, is all about conspiracy theories. I started out doing the chemtrails conspiracy theory, where people believe that the planes in the sky are spraying uh, some kind of weather-altering toxins. Uh, mm-hmm. And I talk to people who believe that 9-11 was an inside job. And I've heard about street epistemology uh, before, but I'd always kind of just thought mm. it was you know, primarily to do with atheism. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see how you got the impression, honestly, because it started in the atheist community. The book that was written by Bogosian is called A Manual for Creating Atheists. Yeah. So I completely understand how you, how you and others have that impression. Yeah, I mean, Peter Bogosian, he you know he wrote this this book, and the first chapter is called Street Epistemology, and it basically lays out the the various techniques that you use uh, for that. <laughs> and I recently read his, uh, his second book, I believe it's his second book, uh, mm-hmm. which is How to Have Impossible Conversations. 
right, which kind right. of builds upon this. But and I think it's perhaps uh, steering a little bit away from the atheism type of thing. And instead of yes, definitely, yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely say so. Yeah, and he's you know trying to I, I guess extend uh, this this methodology into things like uh, like politics, you know, mm-hmm. especially politics, politics, uh, social justice, yeah. political claims, and. It's it's neat that the author that originated street epistemology has recognized the the uh, the diversity of it. I suppose the the flexibility of the tool that it can be used in those in those domains. Yeah, and I, I actually use the term epistemology in in my book um, Escaping the Rabbit Hole uh, because it's it's used within the academic community for talking about conspiracy theorists, and they they use the term crippled epistemology, which is something mm. that um, Cass Sunstein uh, popularized this term, and he defines it as being a uh, beliefs based on a very limited number of information sources. So if, for example, somebody only watched, uh, say, Alex Jones all the time, then mm. they, they have a belief system that's based around uh, you know, what Alex Jones tells them, and they don't have this broader perspective. Mm-hmm. And does that concept of a crippled epistemology is that is that the same type of thing that you're talking about in street epistemology? Well, I've never heard the term before, and based on your description, I would say what you're describing is bias, and we definitely see bias when we're engaging with people. I, I recently uploaded a couple conversations with fo- uh, missionaries from the LDS Church. They happen to be strolling by, and we talked to them. Uh, I talked to them, and one of the concepts that came up was. Are you are you um, looking at things through a filtered lens? Are you biased, perhaps? Are you favoring this view that you think is true because you want the belief to be true? And uh, so that's definitely a factor when we engage with people and something that we notice. And it's even something that we talk about. But we don't accuse somebody of it. We don't say, ha ha, you just you only have one source for all your information. And, you, you know, you're you're a Fox News junkie or something like that. Um that likely won't be effective in helping the person take another look at their views and how they concluded that it's true. And uh, one thing that we might say is, well, how do you how do you find the information that is leading you to your conclusions? Have you considered other sources? Let's say that you discovered another source. How would you go about vetting that to see if that would be something that you'd want to add to your mix or maybe get rid of it? So what we're finding in street epistemology is that when you – you stop talking about the actual claim or the conspiracy or even the quality of their news sources. Well, you actually want to talk about the quality of their news sources, but you don't mm. want to be accusatory or dismissive because you don't find it compelling. They find it compelling. So it's a better use of your time to explore how they did, de- how they determined that that's a good, trustworthy, reliable source. And that acts, that act of exploration helps the person take another look at their view through their own lens. And that's the beauty of this approach is that you're using their own words, their own definitions, the sources that they're using to come to their conclusions. So people like to feel listened to and heard and respected. And that's why these talks usually tend to end on a very good note because you're not misrepresenting your conversation partner. And that's extremely valuable when you're talking to somebody who might be deeply entrenched in a, in a view that, we might personally find horrendous, but if you're interested in helping them take another look at their views, if you have empathy for their position, or at least for them as a human being, might be a better way of phrasing it. This approach might really appeal to you, and, yeah. and I hope 
your listeners look into it further because I think they might be quite surprised at how effective it really could be. Yeah, well, I feel like in a way, like uh, I wouldn't say I've independently rediscovered it, but the way I, I, I evolved personally to talking to people in conspiracy theories did kind of eventually come to this very kind of gentle, respectful way of talking to people. So I think mm. when I started out uh, debunking people uh, on the internet, like debunking conspiracy theories, saying why they're false, it's very much like figuring out what the error is in uh, in someone's claim and then saying, you know, this is wrong because, you know, A, B, and C, uh, which, as you know, doesn't always work very well. Uh, you get this kind of uh, backfire effect uh, sometimes where if you, right. you tell people why they are wrong, then they're just going to double down and fight more. Uh, yes. Yeah. And yes, we try to we try to avoid telling people you're wrong, you're stupid, you are you have a misperception of reality, and we ask them how they determine that they're correct. Mm-hmm. And by that simple shift of approach, you're going to probably have a lot better conversations. However, it is difficult to do it. I don't know if you noticed that when you made that switch yourself. If I'm actually kind of curious, was was it a gradual transition for you? Was it difficult? I, I found it difficult when I switched from debating and arguing and giving people facts to actually listening to them and encouraging to them to explain how they got to their view. Yeah, it was actually a pretty gradual process. Uh, there, there was mm-hmm. a few key moments, I think, uh, one of which was I, I saw a talk uh, by, by Phil Plate uh, called uh, Don't Be a Dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember which, seeing that. Yeah, a while ago. It, uh, it was something like a talk he gave at a skeptics conference uh and the skeptics is you know it's kind of this atheism there but it's also about like addressing pseudoscience and uh um uh things like alternative medicine and you know false beliefs conspiracy theories things like that and he was saying that you've you've got to be respectful to people uh and that it works better yeah. it's just simply that it works better and he actually got some pushback uh from this because people felt mm. a bit upset that they weren't you know in a way allowed to to express their their anger and frustration at uh at uh, people. uh gosh i could definitely relate to that and i'll have to i'll have to review that talk that he gave because now i'm thinking i'm wondering where he gave that if it was do you remember it was it qed con by any chance i think it sounds like what you're describing i think QED it was at the amazing meeting uh which is the okay. J- james randy uh, the old conference mm-hmm. uh, back in las vegas probably about ooh, sure. 10 years ago now I, I think it doesn't surprise me that he received some kickback on that because a lot of people think that you have to use the heavy hammer approach and bash people over the head to knock some sense into them to see things your way. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding, especially when we look at at psychology and people involved in motivational interviewing and even, even the progress that we've made in street epistemology since it came out in 2012, it doesn't seem to work. People tend to become more entrenched in those views. And uh, sometimes arguing with a person and, and ridiculing them, we can sometimes get a benefit from doing that. We can feel good from tearing somebody down. Right. It could be even entertaining, to be quite honest. And it's easier. It's just easier to say, let me just send you a link that shows that you're wrong and I'll be done with you. Mm-hmm. But it's probably not going to land with them. So uh, that might be one of the reasons why you're getting some pushback. I think it, you know it's enjoyable and it's... It's easier, yeah. I think. It's a, it's a little harder to set aside your ego, hear a person out, and then figure out what might be a good questions to respectfully challenge them and give them time to figure you know, to think about it. 
it's it's counterintuitive this approach it is yeah and uh, people i think people think that you should just be able to explain to someone why they are wrong because you know from from your perspective as like you know a rational skeptic or whatever you you consider yourself to be you think that you know what the actual answer is and mm-hmm. all it is is a simple matter of explaining it to people and then when they don't accept your explanation it gets frustrating and then people get uh, they tend to get angry at these people and then they, they yeah but, but that works both ways well, as well i think I, I think i think both yes exactly i think both parties can can it's detrimental to both parties that are involved all the parties are, that are involved in the conversation because if i'm giving you information or evidence that I think well, that I found compelling that I think you should find compelling but it's not the reason that your belief is based on we're likely wasting our time or if I'm arguing with uh, let's say I'm talking with a conspiracy theorist or some, you know somebody making a claim just keep it real general mm-hmm. I suppose if I don't figure out what their real reason is by asking them questions and listening to them and then double checking to make sure that that really is their reason we could very well be talking past each other. And I see that time and time again. In fact, even though I've been doing this for eight years now or so, uh, the most recent video that I uploaded with two Mormon missionaries, there was a point where I think we were completely talking past each other. Hmm. I think we had different impressions of what the word test meant. Now, it never occurred to me in all this time that there might be a misunderstanding of what a, of what a good, sufficient test is. But we were just talking past each other. And it's I was just marveling after the fact that uh, even after having spent so much time on it, it's still quite likely that you're going to be misunderstanding each other, even even despite your best intentions. Yeah, this is something I see all the time is that uh, I'm talking to someone and it, it takes a while before I even realize that we're talking about different things. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, exactly. Oh, you mean this is why you don't understand, or this is why I don't, why, why we're not understanding each other, is that we're actually using like you know the same word for for different meanings. I think this is something uh, yeah. Peter Bogosian talks about in his in uh, How to Have Impossible Conversations is that people mm-hmm. uh, have different opinions about even like fairly simple words like justice or, mm, or truth yes. and things like that. And you, these, you, these are complex words that need to be unpacked. And if we're not taking the time to unpack these, the meaning of these words with our conversation partner, we might get lucky and yeah. we might be talking about the same meaning of the word, but very likely we're not. And we're going to be talking past each other. And that's just going to result in frustration or making you think that you just completely dominated them in one. And they're just scratching their head. Like, I don't even know what that dude was talking about. Yes, because they you, you, the things you're telling them they think are the actual the actual facts from a different perspective. Like you know, some of the, I, I talk to UFO people quite a lot. People who believe that either they've had a personal experience with UFOs or that the, there's evidence of UFOs out there. In some ways, it's mm-hmm. kind of like a religious thing because they have these personal uh, revelations of, of truth in that they they see a UFO or they get abducted by aliens. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know they they have similar types of usages of words where they mean a different thing. Like they they will say uh, like the word real. Uh, they mm-hmm. say UFOs are real, but what they mean mm-hmm. is is kind of different to what other people mean. Like when the recently there was these three videos that were released uh, kind of indirectly by the U.S. Navy that supposedly show UFOs, and the Navy said, "Yeah, these are these are real uh, videos." And then the press goes and says, oh, the Navy admits UFOs are real. 
Uh, but yeah. all, all the Navy was saying was that the videos were real, actual videos from the Navy of objects that they, they didn't immediately identify. Mm-hmm. Whereas people mm-hmm. in the UFO community who have this, this strong desire for you know, alien visitors to be real, they essentially take it as meaning that the Navy is saying that alien spaceship are visiting us and we have video of them. So you yes. get these, these very, very different perspectives. We really do. And uh, the word real is very similar to the word true or truth that we often talk past each other on that word too, where a lot of people say, well, it's my truth. It's true for me. And what I think they tend, and, and you can usually uncover this by asking them questions or a thought experiment uh, that we often do in street epistemology, you often realize that they're talking about a subjective opinion. It's real to me because I think it's the case. Or it's just, I can't think of any other explanation and therefore it's my truth. And they're not using, they're not using that word to mean objective fact. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you even have to just set the belief aside and have this broader discussion about what they mean by the word true or false. And what's the difference between an opinion and a fact? Is this view that you have more of an opinion or is it more of a fact? And when you start sussing it out, you can really uncover some problematic reasons and foundations, I suppose, for people holding these views. But it's crucial that you uncover it because if you don't, you're going to be having this this upper level talk when there's these serious fundamental issues down at the bottom. And in street epistemology, we like to ask questions to get to the foundation to figure out what's really propping it all up. And it seems like people enjoy doing it too. That's I don't know if, how many videos you watched of mine or others who are doing it or observed conversations maybe online where people are doing this. But People tend to enjoy the process yeah. of taking another look at their views. Yeah, I noticed that. And you, you, you start out that you, you come up to somebody like at a university campus or something, and you, mm-hmm. you say like, "Can I do a what a three minutes? Is that what you you do now? Three minutes interview?" <laughs> I started at five. I I bumped it down to four. I mean, there are some times right. people says, "Listen, I just have three minutes. Can you do it in three? I'm like, "I'll give it a shot." But regardless of, that's more of a sort of a. It's a, a non respecting point. their it's a starting point to say, listen, I respect your time. I understand this is a little unusual. You can bail at any time and you can go after it, you know, whatever. I'm not holding you here. Mm-hmm. But what tends to happen is when the timer goes off, even if many times I forget to set the timer, literally forget right. it. But if I do set the timer and it goes off after a certain amount of time, people usually just blow it off and say, Let's just keep going. I'm having a good, good time. You you can keep asking me questions, or I I want to ask you some questions back. They they're it's so funny, like after a three-minute engagement with somebody, if you show respect and that you're listening to them and, and really trying to understand them, they're going to probably stick around for a while to explore these things with you. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people, they feel very confident in, the, in their beliefs. And I think uh, in some ways their motivation for talking to you is to try to uh, convert you in a way. And then they, they, they feel like they're trying to explain their position to you, some of them. Uh, but mm-hmm. then some of them, yeah. Do they? Do you, do you do you often see people have genuine doubt come up in the conversations, or do you do? You, is it much more often you're just kind of you know planting a seed? Or it's very common to see doubt, or at the very least questioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you when you use this approach, uh, it's not. It's it's an odd interview where somebody doesn't go away thinking about, well, I don't know what they're thinking, but they seem to be reporting and showing indications that they're really contemplating the questions that I'm asking them. 
And I see that as a valuable thing that's extremely valuable, especially in an age where we we talk past each other, we argue, we're not listening, we're trying to figure out how I can knock your knock you over personally, possibly even not just your belief. I just want to I just want to kick you in the you know in, in the teeth. Uh, and that's a that's a, like I mentioned before, it's a real problem. And that might be one of the reasons why people seem to be gravitating towards this. Like people such as yourself who have shows who who are noticing this word maybe coming up more or video examples that are crossing your feet or something. It's gaining momentum. We've been working at this for seven or eight years now, and there's a vibrant community of people in, around the world who are trying different ways to build this and make it better. And uh, it's extremely uh, rewarding and fun to be a part of it. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel the, the same way in, in terms of how um, you know things are moving with, let's say, the skeptical movement or the just in, in general in the in the media. Uh, you know, people are recognizing that you you got to have you know, actual conversations with people, uh, and I, I think you know, it is it is something that uh, you know I wouldn't say like it, its time has come, but it's it's certainly something I think is it's uh, increasingly common and increasingly important that uh, that we have these these respectful conversations between people. You know, people are yeah. realizing because because of the increased political polarization within the country the it you know it's 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 problematic and it can lead like to, to some to. bad things down down the road and that we, we want to we want to do something about it now and this is the way to do it. There are people who are noticing the problems that that, that we're raising and they they uh some people feel helpless, some people feel apathetic. It's just is this is just too big of a problem. I don't I just don't know what to do. I'm just gonna turn on the Kardashians and watch it. Mm-hmm. But there are people who are concerned about it, people like yourself, it seems, and, and myself and others, Sure, yeah. who you just had on your show. Like There are people who want to try to improve the world, and this seems to be a, a, a decent step in the right direction to try to make it happen. Yeah, and you actually see things uh, like this coming up around Thanksgiving and around uh, around Christmas because you, you get these articles that people write, like how to have uh, a conversation with your yeah, you know, your 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 uncle who's a, a rabid conservative or whatever, or is a you know a crazy liberal or or yeah. And uh, how do you actually have conversations with people? And uh, you know, it's kind of a good opportunity, I think, around Thanksgiving to bring up topics like this. How do we actually have these these conversations? Well, I mean, it might be useful to have a meta discussion about how we might be able to have better conversations in in those venues, like during those holidays. Mm-hmm. Whether I would actually sit down with a family member while there are other people around during right. those holidays, I don't know if I would actually <laughs> do it. I think there's a time and place for it, and I, I'm not quite convinced that that's the right time and place unless you really uh, prepare the table for it, so to speak. Meaning, yeah. say, I'd really like to explore this with you some more, and I want to try a different approach than what maybe I've been using in the past. Would you be willing to do that? Mm. And they might ask for an example, and you can you can maybe show them a video example or explain to them a couple of questions that you might ask, and then uh, you can gingerly embark on it in that environment, I suppose. But pay very close attention to see if they're becoming irate, yeah, or uh, un- maybe too uncomfortable. You want them a little uncomfortable, but um, you don't want to push it too much where you're you're sabotaging the whole holiday for everybody. Indeed, yeah, you, gotta, you yeah. need to you really need to to pay attention to the venue that you're in. Do you usually engage with people face to face or online, or what's what's your 
what's your venue of choice? Uh, well, recently I've been doing a lot of this. I've been talking to people, uh, you know, face to face via things like Skype. Uh, mm. But I've done a lot of, yeah, a lot of just basic text based uh, discussion, you know, uh, exchanging messages on message boards. But I, I really do prefer doing it face to face. Totally, uh, because you, yeah, you totally, really, yeah. yeah, the the feedback you get from just seeing somebody and just actually, you know, talking to someone for a start is better than exchanging messages and exchanging tweets. Uh, you can get things done a lot quicker and you can hear the tone of voice and you can, uh, you hear the pauses and you can hear the thoughts uh, of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's just a lot better. And you I know, agree. encourage people to do that. I was going to say though about the uh, Thanksgiving thing. I think the reason you see these articles isn't that you know, they're encouraging people to jump on the uncle when they, they come around. It's that, you know, the uncle, when they do come around, they often bring up uh, the topics themselves. Uh, the the uncle will start talking about whatever strange belief he has, and it gets a bit uh, difficult for other people. And it's, it's in a way, it's a way of diffusing that situation rather than rather than you know, starting to instigate something. It's more mm-hmm. of a defensive method. Uh, well, maybe so. I want to talk a bit about you know the actual techniques of uh, street epistemology. Um, mm-hmm. You you use the term uh, interlocutor. Is that how you pronounce it? I used to say interlocutor, and now I say inter, inter, interlocutor is sort of the way that I've. It's, I think I've been saying interlocutor for the last yeah. few years. I think it's conversation a, partner might be yes. good. Interview partner, I've heard people say. Friend, discussion partner. I mean, there's. I, yeah. I use the term friend, but I th- I think that's because I'm more aimed at uh, talking to people you actually already know, whereas you're you're quite often you're just basically approaching a stranger in the street uh, or wherever, and so and the. Uh, the other person, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> I guess it's a little problematic if you've been using a word for years and we, we don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and we, we make a, well, we sort of co-opted the word interlocutor to usually mean the person that I, as the person using street epistemology is speaking right. with. Right, yeah. When the, the definition is both parties, uh, both conversation partners. Is, yeah. Is, uh, yeah, so you've got this, this, this terminology that you have within street epistemology, which is, is obviously <laughs> it's not meant to be used in the conversation, but it's, it's used when you're talking about the techniques. And this, this one really interesting thing that comes up quite often is the, the notion of uh, doxastic closure. Mm-hmm. Can you explain mm-hmm. what that actually is? A very academic term that I think first surfaced, at least came across. I never saw that word before until I yeah. read Bogosian's first book. Uh, if I recall correctly, it refers to a person's tendency to be a little bit more guarded with regards to their belief. They're protective of their belief. So if someone is doxastically closed, my understanding is that uh, they, uh, they, they're expressing an unwillingness to reconsider that they might be mistaken. Mm-hmm. That might be a, I might be off on that. Might might want to double check that, but I think I'm okay with that. You occasionally do meet people who are so convinced that they're right that they can't even conceive, or at least they express the idea that they can't conceive of the possibility that they might be mistaken on it. So uh, maybe another way of looking at it would be a dogmatic person or a dogmatism might be another might be right. a synonym of, right. of doxastic yeah. closure. What you're kind of looking for is someone who's doxastically open. Dox, dox I think, is a maybe a Latin term for maybe it's Greek for belief. And uh, the more open and comfortable and honest a person is with you when you're engaging with them, the more productive I think your conversation will be when you use street epistemology with them. 
Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, it seems, no, it does. It does. Uh, yeah. yeah. If somebody's open and, and they feel safe and they don't feel like you're misrepresenting them, but you do run to a lot of people who are just, they're willfully ignorant on their position. It, it doesn't mean that the conversation's over. You can still engage with a person that way. You might start talking about another person who holds a slightly different view that's contradictory to theirs who might be just as dogmatic. How do you think, what suggestion do you think that you might have on how we can break through to that person who's just as convinced as you are? And if you listen to your interlocutor, your conversation partner, they might start giving you ideas mm. on how you can break through to them. And that could be a, a useful approach. Sometimes I think we might just have a tendency to throw up our hands. This person is just too difficult. They're too far gone. Yeah, and maybe maybe some people are, but I, I'm a little bit more optimistic that the more people who learn these these approaches, the, the street epistemology or the Socratic method, motivational interviewing, uh, a variation of, of perhaps what you're doing when you're engaging with people, the more people I think who understand how problematic it could be to ridicule somebody and give them facts that show that they're mistaken if they're not ready for it, there are some people who are. The more that we can educate people on this other method, the better I think it will be for humanity. And I think it might start opening people more up to, to epistemic humility, to being humble enough to say, I'm fairly confident that that's true, but I, I'm not 100% sure. I'm willing to, to budge a little bit, that type yeah. of thing. I would love to see a point where we get there, but we might need to start teaching this at, a, at, at a young age. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or indoctrinating the youth. As, as other indoctrinating the youth in skepticism yes. and critical thinking and, yeah. and, and humility, epistemic humility, perhaps. Yeah. It was interesting when you were talking about that. I was, I was thinking about the difference between uh, religious people and conspiracy theorists when it comes to the doxaxic <laughs> closure and the open-mindedness type uh, thing. Mm. Like religious people wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as being open-minded because they they have they have faith and they have belief and they 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 are you know doxastically closed they may even take pride in it yeah yeah i'm more virtuous because i'm closed on it (laughs) yeah yeah blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes is like a a fundamental you know tenet of uh of christianity is that the people who didn't see uh, Jesus being raised from the dead and yet still believed that he was raised from the dead are somehow more uh, more holy and better yeah. than the people who actually base their beliefs off evidence. Right. And this is this is a big topic in Boghossian's latest book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, this idea of talking to people about how they how they view themselves. And most people tend to view themselves as good, moral, decent people. And, uh, when you, when you challenge a person's deeply held belief, like a religious view or even a conspiracy, a conspiratorial minded person on their, their pet conspiracy, something that they've put a lot of effort in, it's courted now who they are. It's part of their identity. When you challenge those views, religious views included, people will see it as a challenge to themselves, which is why when we're using street epistemology, we, we really want to separate the belief from the method that the person is using to conclude that the belief is true. And there's mm-hmm. a, there's a world of difference there. People become very guarded when you talk about their belief, what they think is true. They might even become a little bit guarded when you talk about their reasons, like the personal experience they had. 
but people tend to be a little bit more objective at looking at it with you. If you focus on their method that they use to conclude that that's a good reason for holding a high degree of confidence in the claim, that's where you can make the most traction. That's where the seeds get planted. That's where you can, you can inspire somebody to want to go out and find better reasons or maybe continue a dialogue with you because they're, you've really got them thinking. People, it seems, like to think about about these things. They do. But they're, they not do. Often, they're not often given an opportunity to do it. You see that in your, your videos. Like you, you, you yeah. give someone a question and they pause and they think, huh, they do the looking up thing. Uh, which is something <laughs> right. you, you strive to get them to do, to, to, to look up the thing. And if, you, if you ever see somebody take a second to think about what you've just asked them, don't talk. Right. Just shut up. Yeah, let them, let them <laughs> let think. Them, let them think about it. It's so tempting to want to interject and, and help them out of that awkward moment. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the best things that you can do is just let them, let them think about it. Let them stew in it a little bit. If they need clarification, they can ask you for it. They might even be quiet for a minute because they're processing what it is you've asked them. Now, they might be confused too. And they're right. like, you know, <laughs> look, looking around like, well, now what do we do? So you have to be paying attention to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, give people time to think these things through. Try not to rush it. Oh yeah, that's definitely something I, 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 I learned over the years is that you, you can't mm-hmm. just like tell somebody something and then accept, ex- expect them to process that straight away or even like you know raise questions and expect them to have answers straight away. It's sure. a very long process. And you know, with, with a lot of people you're planting seeds that may not bear fruit for, for weeks or months afterwards. And for some people it's even years. Like some of the people I, I interviewed for my book, uh, they, they were stuck in conspiracism for, for many years before they got out. But the seeds that helped them get out actually were kind of planted over a, a long period of time. So even though, even though it might seem like you're not doing any good uh, for these people, even if they don't you know, do the look up uh, and think type thing, I still think you're still planting seeds that that can be helpful uh, in the long term. I think I think so, and I like to record my interactions too, if if I have a person's permission, and then share it online so that other people can watch it and give me feedback. But what's interesting is I've had people email me, or they even comment in the video that the exchange that they watched has planted a seed in them, mm-hmm. and it's given them something to think about. And people are emailing me, messaging me almost on a daily basis to say, I no longer believe that thing that you were talking with that person on the trail about. I don't believe it anymore because you started me on a journey of thinking about it myself. And these are people from around the world that I, I, I've never interacted with them. They've just watched a, a 20 minute video. Yeah. And that's why it's valuable talking to people, even who, yeah. even people who are doxastically close. I'm going to have to stop saying that word. Even people who are very <laughs> close minded and very like firm in their faith or their, their belief in whatever you know thing they believe in. Even if you even if you don't shift them, you can shift somebody else because there's, there's quite often there is an audience. I know your your videos like you know have an audience of, of other people, but even when I'm chatting with somebody on Facebook or on Twitter, I know that uh, there are people listening. Like one of the guys I interviewed for my podcast yeah. a while ago, he said he kind of came around to my way of thinking to a degree because he was watching me argue with people on on facebook in one of the 911 mm-hmm. facebook groups mm-hmm. uh, and yet these people in the group they weren't shifting at all uh, mm-hmm. but because i i politely persisted uh in in talking to them and you know didn't uh, uh didn't like you know go down into the uh, you know the insults and the shouting which a lot of people do uh yeah. then uh he actually started to listen to what i was saying 
So I think that's the same thing with what you're doing. People are going to be listening to what you're saying just because uh, you know you 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 are you're you're nice, you're polite, you're respectful, and you you raise good points. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I, th- I think there's there's that bystander effect. Well, that that means something completely different, but there is yeah there's there are people usually watching these exchanges whether it's if i'm interviewing the two folk the two missionaries from the lds church i might be talking to one guy while the other one is really thinking about the question that i just asked this dude um or maybe yeah when you're online people might just be taken aback by like that's somebody who i I completely disagree with but he's being so much nicer than that guy from my tribe exactly yeah like why, why isn't my guy from my tribe being just as nice as him he's really being a jerk but this guy's being so nice that might just be what it takes to to have the guy, the observers, take another look at your what you're saying and what you're asking and really think about it when when they're not in the hot seat per se. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to uh, uh, look at you got this this article. I don't know if uh, you wrote it, but this street epistemology: the basics on streetepistemology.com, which is I think a great introduction to what street epistemology mm. actually is. Uh, someone wants to figure out, you know, find out what we're actually talking about here. We, we, <laughs> right. they, they hopefully to, we, they hopefully really. we covered most of the basics there. <laughs> so for people. what I want to do real quick is just kind of go through the 10 steps in it and just let's see like, you know, what, oh, what's, 10 steps. uh, uh, is there 10 steps? There's, there's, there's nine, there's, eight, there's eight steps. <laughs> yeah, there's, right. there's 10. It's funny uh, because I'm I'm thinking about making, uh, well, I made a tutorial series, a video right. tutorial video yeah, so was like in 2015. It's a little dated. We've learned so much mm. since then, and I was thinking about refreshing that series. And yeah, I, there would yeah. definitely be more than eight little videos. I think I'd probably have to do like fifteen or twenty and chunk it up. Well, this is this is just kind of like a quick you know, getting into yeah. it. Like, so I mean, the first thing, step one, is uh, build rapport with your uh, your interlocutor, the other your conversational <laughs> partner, conversation partner. <laughs> yes, yeah, very critical. It shows people that you're listening to them, you're you're hearing what they're saying, mm-hmm. and. Oftentimes during the rapport building phase, well, it, it's, it helps you to see that that individual as a person. They're a human being with emotions, and they see you as in the same way usually. But oftentimes they might reveal something about like maybe they maybe they build bridges or they they're an engineer. I mean, or something right. like that. Or you might you might learn something about what they do in in regular life that could be useful later on when we get to step like six or seven when you're challenging how they concluded that something is true. Could we possibly use that same method to construct a bridge? Yeah. If you were hiring an employee at work at the bank, do you think that you would use that same method to figure out the best right. candidate for the job? See, putting it in terms they understand and uh, yeah, something they can exactly. relate speak to. Their, speak their language. People love to, to to be listened to. Yeah, and obviously, like you know, you want to start off on the right foot uh, with these these conversations, and that uh, you you want Ideally. to start out with something that's uh, <laughs> not immediately confrontational. Confrontational, yeah, people. Yeah, they, this actually reminds me of what you what I find that usually happens on social media, not usually in person, although it can happen in person too. Yeah, let's say I'm at a protest, I might be arguing with somebody, and then it dawns on me, oh, this isn't this isn't going to be effective. Let me reel this back and try this different way. And sometimes I do that on social media too. I, I make a snide comment on somebody's post, and then they reply back, and now I'm like, ooh, now I got to kind of yeah. walk that back. It doesn't, even though you might start off on the wrong foot, it doesn't mean that the conversation is doomed. Even if you've been going about it the, the opposite way of what we're talking about for years, the, the conversation is still the, yeah, the, the conversation or the topic that you're talking about is still repairable. I think you could still get through it. 
yeah, you can always kind of do some kind of reboot and like, you know, you can, yeah. you can say to people like, oh, I think we kind of got off on the wrong foot here. Let's, uh, exactly. let's, let's kind of st- try to start again. Like, what are we talking about? Which brings us to right. step two, which is identifying okay. the claim. Uh, so it's like, uh, what are they actually claiming? But how do you, how do you kind of like bring that out? Do you just ask them, is there something you believe in or do you believe in this? I don't usually, well, when I first started going out, I had a claim in mind that I wanted to challenge people on. Mm -hmm. And these days, because we know that this tool can be used for all sorts of claims, I ask a person to pick the claim that they think is true that motivates them to behave in a certain way. Something that you find yourself acting out on because you think that it's true. Do you avoid giving your kid plastic cups because you think that the chemicals in the the plastic are going to taint the water when you put it in the microwave? Or... This approach seems to be really effective when you when you start with a claim that people are acting out on. If people are sort of like, ah, I kind of hmm. wishy-washy on it, ah, I don't really know if paper bags are better than the plastic. I don't really care either way. You can still explore that using this approach, but it seems to be much more profound and effective and um, shocking when you watch it on YouTube if it's something that's core to who they are. Yeah. So as far as like topic selection, I usually just... I, Sometimes people don't know what to pick because I'm just asking them out of the blue, let's pick a topic. But that usually helps to kind of narrow it down. So you're actually doing something that has an effect on their life. Uh, that I, actually, actually changes their behavior. Possibly. Yeah, let's pick a claim that you think is true that you're acting out on. And it, it, you're, you're, you're teaching other people this because you think that it's true. So, for example, I ran into a woman who said that her grandmother had taught her that uh, when a deceased relative dies, you should leave water out for them. This is something that she does. That would be a great thing to talk about with her, and I did. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I see the the first example that's given in this thing is actually uh, they believe in UFOs. Uh, but huh. I guess like most of your videos do seem to center around religion, though. Is that the you know, by far the most thing common thing that comes up, or is it changing? Is it changing? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I could adequately answer that question. Mm-hmm. If it's changing, but most people in my area, because I live in Texas, and I when I ask them to pick something that's right. core to who they are, and perhaps they think that I'm uh, an ev- evangelical Christian or something because of of the town that I'm in. Maybe they. Maybe that's skewing the topic selection perhaps but i try to give them a a couple of different options too we can talk about karma ghost politics social justice whatever and then i you know they usually pick something yeah i saw you had one which was an an atheist who believed in karma Uh, Mm -hmm. it's also an interesting interesting thing is that you get people who are atheists and yet they believe in some kind of thing that's essentially supernatural but they right. perhaps haven't thought about what the implications of this this supernatural thing actually actually are. And yeah. <laughs> if you believe in karma, <laughs> why don't you believe in God? Yeah, or um, sometimes I meet people who believe in God and karma, and I ask them, hmm. "Would you? Is your belief in karma dependent on believing in God?" And they oftentimes say yes. So if it, sometimes I'll ask questions to narrow down the topic selection. So in that instance, I might say, "Well." Look, Let's set karma aside for now and let's focus on God. Since, since your view on karma isn't influenced by the, by the God belief, let's, would you be okay if we talked about that? And sometimes they say, uh, that one's just a little bit too close to home. I think I'd be a little bit more comfortable talking about karma. And I say, okay, that's fine. We can do that. Yeah. But it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter the topic that you pick because the, the subsequent uh, steps that I think you're probably going to be mentioning will pretty much work with any claim that you, that you select. And – 
hopefully by the time that you're done with the conversation and you might have to do a couple with, with the same person, but it's, it could be really valuable if you're in the process of exploring their, their confidence and their claim and their reasons and their methods, you could be teaching them how to do this. So sometimes it might even be better to take a safer topic like karma and interrogate it in a friendly way and perhaps impart that tool set so that they can maybe look into street epistemology or try to replicate the questions that I asked about this safe topic of karma on something a little bit more closer to home like the God belief. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of uh, tallies with something I do, which is try to uh, focus on something on the fringes of the belief spectrum. So you take things that they're Mm -hmm. perhaps not so 100% sure about Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you talk to them about that. You know, why do you suspect this might be true, or why do you think it's true? And you know, what would it take you to step just from this side of the line to that side of the line? And if you get them to focus on you know one thing uh, like that that isn't perhaps as threatening to their entire belief system, then mm-hmm. it, it allows them to think about you know why they're believing in this thing, and perhaps apply the same things to things that are a bit further down. Uh, their their solidity spectrum in terms of what they actually believe. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. Like, I think I even mentioned it during the conversation with the woman about spirits and water and stuff. Her name is Maritza, Maritza, if anyone wants to look into it. But I think at the end, we started talking about how we may have actually created a template for her so that she can go home. Mm. Because I think she says something at the end, like, now I'm questioning all of my faith beliefs. And uh, then we started talking about, well, maybe you can just take this, take this discussion that we had and, and think about it. And then maybe you can start asking yourself the same questions about these other things. So, yeah, I think that that, that approach that you're talking about might actually be pretty smart to do. Yeah. Well, let's uh, whip through these other steps. Step three is confirm yeah. the claim. Uh, that's like confirming that you have understood what they are talking about. I mean, that kind of goes back mm-hmm. to what we were talking about earlier with definitions of words. So Precisely. How, how do you go about confirming it? Do you, you rephrase it to them in a different way or good question i might say something like okay just so i understand when you say god i think what you're referring to is an all-powerful entity who has the ability to influence how humans interact with reality do i have that right and they might say yes (laughs) right they might say no that's way off how did you even get that or they might say now that you're repeating it back to me that's not exactly what I mean. Can I just tweak it a little bit? And so you're fine tuning it. You're getting it, you're getting it perfected, but not to the point where it's like you're locking it in and you're, you won't budge on it from that point on. It's sort of like a temporary placeholder. I think this is what we're talking about. And you can even do this with their reasons and their method too. I think this is the reason why you think that, that this thing is true. Yeah. Is that, is that correct? And then you can revisit these things and come back and change them if need be. You need to be flexible about it. You don't need to be it's, – it's counterproductive, I think, also to be rigid about how you go about doing this. Some yeah. people might be ready to jump right into their reasons or their method. But it does seem to make more sense to like get a really clear understanding of, of uh, what they mean by these words and even their confidence level. How sure are you that this is true? Is that one of the steps? That yeah, that's that one of the steps. Step. So well, step four is clarify definitions, which you kind of went over there. You know, what do mm-hmm. you mean by the mm-hmm. word God or true or whatever? And then step five is identify a confidence level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is a technique that Bogosian like, talks about is like getting people to put a number on, uh, on something, like, you know, es- establishing a scale for things right. like on a scale of one to one to a hundred. Uh, you know, how strongly do you believe in this? And is this something that you you you, you almost always do in your your videos, in your your discussions, rather? 
I don't always do it, but if I don't do it, I almost always regret not having mm. done it because I get to the end of a conversation and they're expressing some doubt, some questioning, those, those, those pauses and those, yeah. those reflectful poses that we talked about. And I'm sometimes kicking myself, why didn't I ask them how sure they were at the beginning? Yeah. Because now I can compare to see if they moved. But uh, it's almost a dead giveaway when you say, well, on a scale from zero to 100 or one to 10, how sure are you that this is true? That could be a dead giveaway that you're doing street epistemology. And in some circles, that can close people down. So you have to be careful about when you roll it out. I've been experimenting with getting an idea of what their claim is and how they're talking about the claim and how they're behaving with their body. I don't even think I asked the the, the LDS missionaries when they walked by how sure they were on a scale from zero to 100. That's true. I mean, I, I think that they're fairly confident that it's true. They're out there. Now, they, I think mid-conversation I did ask them that because it's useful to get a sense of where they're at, but you don't have to do it. It's a good subjective indicator that's being mm -hmm. self-reported by your conversation partner. And, and I find that it's fairly useful. Sometimes I'm surprised by the answers people give when I ask that question too. Yeah, like 87% or something. <laughs> I, I've actually said, I think I've, I, did you pull that number just out of random? Because no, I think, I think somebody that was one of, your, one of your videos. Okay, good, good, good. You titled it. Yeah. It's 87 or 83, I think. But it was a very specific number. Very specific. I am 83% exactly. sure that God is real. <laughs> right. I think that conversation was about karma. Mm. But yeah, sometimes people will even say, turn off the camera and I'll tell you my real confidence level. Oh, really? And is it is it lower than the public confidence level? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Very, so, yeah, that very. kind of... You see the you hear the about priests who don't believe in God and things like that all the time. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of I think social pressure for people to uh, say they believe in things, but perhaps they're having secret doubts. Yes, and they're not willing to talk to you about it. That's very interesting. Is, is that something that happens a lot? Or do you get the sense that there's a lot of that going on? People aren't really at a hundred, but they feel compelled to say a hundred. I think that happens quite a bit, but I don't know. I, I can only go off of what they're telling me. Even if they say I'm 100 and then at the end of a the conversation, they're 80%. Mm. Did they just feel obligated to say that because they thought right. that was my objective all along and they just didn't want to make me feel bad or something? <laughs> I, who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows what the motivation is? Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, we've identified a confidence level. And then the next step is to identify the method used to arrive at the confidence level. Now, I think this is probably going to be the most complicated step and the one that's going to make people think a lot and you have to, you have to talk about it a lot. What do, what are people's rea reactions when you say, like, what method did you use to get to this 100%? Was there a step in between those? Because it seems like there's something missing. Uh, that was, this, this uh, kind of... Identify a confidence level before that. And oh, then, really? So... And then, and then method, huh? Yeah, and straight to method. So, yeah, how confident are you? I'm 100. How, how did you arrive at uh, being yeah. 100? This is why I was saying, like, if I were to redo this in a video format, I would probably have 15 steps. I, there's, a, there's a crucial step in between okay. getting a person's claim locked down and an idea of how sure they are that it's true it's, um, and, and figuring out what method that they're using to confirm all of this. It's to figure out what reason they're using to believe. So, for example, I guess I'll just go back to the to the individual who said that uh, her grandma was telling her that you need you need to leave water out for your deceased loved ones because the spirits don't go away right away. I would ask, and I did ask, why why do you think that? What is your reason? What's your main justification? And her justification was, well, 
in the middle of the night, I'll hear footsteps going down the hallway. Huh. That's her reason, which is, which is different than method. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So method would be, do you want to take a stab at it or do you want no, me to say? It's, no, it's like the, um, it's, it's basically asking them what the evidence is that, uh, that they use uh, to believe it, which is kind of like, I mean, identifying the method is, is identifying the method and the reasons. I guess you could put those together in the same, the same thing. Like, you know, you're asking mm-hmm. them why they're at a hundred percent, you know, what, uh, what, what, what reasons, what evidence do you have for this? And then I guess the, the method is, are you asking them about what, what type of logical steps they are going through in their, their mind to, to arrive at that hundred percent or are they calculating? They're not calculating the odds of being right. Obviously not usually. These are usually just sort of subjective fly by the seat of my pants type of number that I'm going to throw it. No method would be. So her reason is I hear footsteps going down the hallway mm-hmm. and my grandmother says that spirits get thirsty and, I might even talk to my grandma grandma who says, Oh yeah, those, those footsteps, I heard them too. And that's, that's your uncle. That was, that was, that was his spirit. So methodology, epistemology, it's how we know things. How, how are we coming to arrive at our conclusions? So what I would ask is how did you determine, I don't even dismiss the, the footsteps. Well, we, we actually talked a little bit about that. If I remember right, I said something like, you're calling them footsteps. Are they footsteps or right. are they sounds that you're hearing that you're calling footsteps? <laughs> so we had a little bit of a discussion about that, which she said, okay, that's actually a good point. You've got me thinking here. There are sounds that I think are footsteps, but the crucial piece, the, the biggest, the biggest bang for your buck when engaging somebody on these claims is to get into their method. How, how did you conclude that the sounds that you're hearing I'm going to go with you on this. You're hearing something. How did you determine that the sounds that you're hearing are indeed the ghost of your deceased grandfather or uncle? And that's usually when people like, that's usually when you get those spider moments. Mm -hmm. How could I differentiate that sound from leprechauns pitter pattering down the hallway or a, a secret Chinese program that's designed to trick impressionable college students on university campuses or something. Yeah. So when you start talking about methodology or epistemology, that's usually when the, the the brakes lock up on the train that's barreling down the highway. (laughs) You know, the trains don't go down highways, but that's usually where people pause and think about things a little bit better. How can I actually be so sure that that is a good reason? And I, am I being consistent? That's another thing too. Um, we got into a discussion about what it would take to change her mind that it wasn't spirits. And she set this really high bar for disproving it. And then we compared it to the bar that she was setting for accepting it. And then we talked about the gap and she realized mm. that she was having a double standard there too. That's, that's so much more effective than just saying, listen, we've done brain scans on bodies and when people die, that's it. You know, you're worm food or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to help that person take another look at their views, and it's it's uh, it's so counterproductive to do it that way. It seems. Yeah, and I think back to the the uh, discussions I've had with conspiracy theorists, and a lot of the time, like uh, you know, I am just trying to giving them the the facts of the matter, like you know, explaining like this this trail that a plane leaves behind is actually a contrail, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and it's due to condensation, blah blah blah. I sometimes give them the science and give them references, but you know, looking back to it, I kind of wish that I had been uh, asking them about why they believe what they believe. 
because I think that would have been yeah. a, you know, the conversation would have been a lot more productive because they already believe that this thing. So if you meet them something else, doesn't change that. That they're convinced that that's something nefarious. So a couple of approaches I, I could suggest is to say, how did you conclude, or why do you actually think that these are poisonous? What is it? Gases coming out of airplanes? Yeah, I'm not even some, some kind of chemicals. Sure. They, they think they're changing the weather by spraying things in the air secretly. To okay. So why do you think that that's that? Why do you think that that's true? What's your main reason why you think that? And they might give a reason. Double check to make sure that it is the reason. If we work together to figure out if that was a good reason, and we both agreed that it wasn't to your satisfaction, would you still be just as confident in the claim? They might say no. They yeah. might say yes. So you really have to kind of probe that. Another, the second uh, tip I wanted to mention is ask them what evidence would change their mind. So rather than just constantly giving people things that you're going to, that you found convincing or you think they will find convincing, ask them and hopefully they, they give something reasonable. If they don't, then you can discuss the gap mm -hmm. like the previous example. But if they're giving something reasonable and they confirm to you that that's indeed what would accept what they would accept to lower their confidence, then you can work with them to give them that. But what I think you're going to find is, especially people who are, they're conspiratorial minded and they think they have evidence, they seem to be really bad at figuring out what evidence would change their mind. Yeah. Uh, and that's where your focus, I think you, I think you get a lot more traction if you approach it that way. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I am actually going to have to wrap this up early because my wife just texted mm -hmm. me and she's got a flat tire and she needs me to help her. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Let's wrap uh, it up. Uh, so how, but, uh, how sure are you that she actually has a flat? Tire? Uh, she, she sent me a photograph of it. So <laughs> you have a photograph. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. I have evidence. Increases the confidence a little bit more. So than she needs to see some help, but uh, I, I, it's a shame because uh, I, I, uh, we were getting through step seven and step eight, but step eight okay. is less than summarize question, watch and repeat, which, uh, I think, you know, it's basically just continuing the conversation, like talking to them and doing that uh, over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe even direct them to resources where they can learn this approach and start doing it on their own views and and uh, trying not to overwhelm the person too. Try, noticing what's happening during the conversation to see, you know, I think my questions are really overwhelming them. I think this might be a good time to end it. Let's Let's just wrap it up and maybe pick okay. it up next week. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I uh, yeah. Anyway, I just want to thank you, thank you for doing this. And sorry we had to cut it My off pleasure. short, but uh, I, I uh, understand. No we problem. Did a, we did an hour, which is what I uh, normally do. It's a fascinating conversation, and I think I could uh, easily do another hour. So if you're you're up for doing another talk sometime, uh, I would like Absolutely. to maybe delve into yeah. a little bit more about the conspiracy theory uh, crossover and the the other aspects like politics and things like that. I think that'd be fun. Maybe we can see what the reaction is to this episode. And if, yeah. if, there's, a, if there's a demand, maybe we do something okay. else. Okay, great. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Okay, I'm off now. I'm off to rescue my wife. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I hope right. she's okay. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.